Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy in the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 29 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So as we sort of come toward the end of season three, so to speak, I've organized this podcast into seasons primarily because I find when I'm, when I like a podcaster, if I'm looking for a certain topic, it's helpful if it's part of a season. And so season one was Jack and season two was Molly. And season three has been based on this book I'm reading called The Body Keeps the Score and just the many ways that grief and trauma affect our lives, primarily physically. I mean, obviously emotionally and socially as well. And I've talked about all those things. And in my last episode, I was really going to focus on parallel lives. And I talked about, of course, about the commercial, which <laughs> commercial Barb and Concord Barb are two very different people living a parallel life. It ended up being okay. But in this episode, what I want to do is pull together a little bit and share some stories around relationships and friendships I've had and how sort of my traumatic life, where so my child abuse trauma and then job loss trauma and Roy trauma, all of that, and then Molly's death. and when I look at like the major traumas in my life, those are really the three huge ones. Oh, I've had lots and lots of others, but so in looking at all of this, actually the parallel life piece plays into the difficulty that traumatized people have around stable relationships. And this is all relationships. I think it's, you know, romantic relationships. I think it's sibling and family relationships. I think it's friendships, acquaintances, bosses. And so I'll just talk a little bit about all of those things. So I'll start with something that just came to mind right now as I was talking. So years ago, you know, I went to college at BU. When I got there, I came out of high school having had like three different jobs and two of the three jobs I was let go of. Now I did a great job at my jobs. I was a waitress at Weeks. I worked at McDonald's. I was a waitress at Friendly's, but I always seemed to get myself into some sort of pickle and I would be let go. Never anything like horribly bad. At the time, I remember thinking, what am I doing wrong? Usually it was some social mishap or something with a coworker and the coworker was upset with me or it was just very, very bizarre things. And none of those firings, so to speak, had like a permanent lasting effect on my relationship with the people in those jobs. If that was ever a premonition for what was to come, what was to come for me, it would have been there. I remember distinctly feeling like I got fired from everything. So now here I am going off to college on a full scholarship. I don't want to get fired from that. And I didn't, but I definitely pushed the envelope. So for me, the first sort of relationship I'll look at is like the, the boss relationship, like the person who's in charge of you. And I will not lie, I have a very difficult relationship with bosses. Not that I don't I mind being told what to do, but I'm always, I call myself an envelope pusher. And an envelope pusher is somebody that just tests, tests, tests the limits until maybe they're in trouble or maybe they're not. And, and that is definitely me. I, I'm not a rule breaker, I'm a rule bender. And I've often always bragged about that. You know, rules are meant to be bent or challenged. And in some ways, I feel that that's not a bad view to have, that sometimes we have to really think about the rules that we're bound by and why they exist. 
for somebody who's a trauma survivor, and so right now I'll be talking about child abuse trauma and that, that trauma of mine, its most immediate effect on me was a loss of friendships at school because I suddenly felt all weird inside and I was fighting a lot of inner demons and that just gets in the way of normal, healthy elementary, middle and high school friendships. By the time I was in high school, I was able to sort of work around some of that and sort of figure out my niche and where I fit in or where I was trying to fit in. And then running came along and really took it over for me. I became something other than me. Parallel life, you know, crazy little abuse, Barbara over here, state champion runner, Barbara right here. So the two realities coexist. The running really helped me to become much more socially, socially accepted and comfortable as a high school student. My best high school memories really do exist in 11th and 12th grade and the spring of 10th, my running, my running career. In the remainder of my life, when I look at jobs I had after high school, so I did a bit better in terms of getting fired from, you know, like I was a waitress. I had a couple of different waitressing jobs. I worked at a restaurant called Callahan's. I worked at the 99. I loved waitressing. And I did okay. I was living in Boston, got my first teaching job. And sure enough, that was a job that I was initially let go of because I, I had another teacher that didn't like me. And she just wanted me to be fired. She just, we just didn't get along. And I, you know, I, I didn't follow along with what she thought I should do. I, we had a very contentious relationship. And so I was transferred to an elementary school. And I got to the elementary school and there was a strict, strict, strict principal whose words to me were, you don't smile at the kids till Christmas, show them who's boss. You know, I, I was working with children that struggled with learning. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to not smile at them. And she just did not like me, did not like me at all and wanted me gone. And I fought back a little bit on that one and I was renewed. I was, I could have come back and had another year. This was in Woburn, but I decided not to. At that time I decided to move home. And so I worked at Second Start and I loved it, except midway through the year, I realized it really wasn't the job for me. And that's a job I was also not asked back to. I wasn't fired if I had pleaded to come back. I think I might've been able to go and go on a plan, but it wasn't for me. I knew it wasn't for me. I was struggling, you know, and I, I missed a lot of school and I was just not doing well. That year was also the first year that I went, adopted a, a sober lifestyle. I joined AA in the fall of 1989. And that was when I was teaching at Second Start. My job in the Concord School District lasted 21 years. And my removal from that job was absolutely unrelated to my performance as a teacher and completely related to my situation with Roy and trying to assist him in, you know, divorce and custody and all these different things that really I just should have stayed out of. But I'm just one of those people when I see somebody being hurt or mistreated, you know, especially children, I can't look away. And so, but again, Here's yet another job that I've lost, but I've not been asked back to. And so that's been very tricky. VLAX, now I'm, I'm working at VLAX again, but the year before Molly died, when I got sucked into working at, for David Parker in, at the special ed school there and spreading myself too thin and not, not following through, I really got sucked down into a rabbit hole there and I lost that job. Now I'm back because I'm a good teacher and my job skills are excellent. It's the fitting in piece. It's becoming a working part of a machine bigger than myself. And it's very, very difficult for me. Conversely, I have a hard time scheduling myself, motivating myself to work alone, to be self-employed. Getting this podcast going and trying to get the Molly B Foundation off the ground and offer an online product that this can be what I do as opposed to, you know, working for someone else. I have struggled every step of the way. Some of this is ADHD. They're finding that ADHD is a direct response to trauma. That it's not that it isn't attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, not that those things don't exist, but it's not some random thing that happens for no reason, like it does in some children. 
in someone like me that was tested again and again throughout my childhood and didn't have it, I have what looks like ADHD. And when I take medicine for it, I have help. I've taken Adderall before and it's unbelievable how focused I am. I think, wow, I could live this way all the time. You know, I could if I took the medicine, but that's not my plan. Child abuse trauma, the, the loss of innocence, feeling unsafe, not knowing who to trust as a child around people who are supposed to love and protect you. For me, had major effects on friendships, on jobs and relationships with bosses. And also sometimes in school, I didn't get in trouble a lot in school, but I definitely pushed the envelope. I remember I'd call people by their first name, you know, instead of calling a teacher, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, I would just say their first name. And of course I'd get spoken to for that. I didn't have good boundaries, like in physical situations, not that I was inappropriate, but I would stand too close or hug a lot. And that's followed me. I just love to hug a big hugger. Poor Molly Dad, I'm not a hugger at all anymore. In the trauma associated with abuse part of Barb's life. The struggles I had were pretty intense. I had a very tight group of high school friends and we're high school friends. Again, we're tight now. But in the middle of that, graduated and I went off to BU and ran for Nike and I sort of disappeared. And, and a lot of my high school friend group stayed together. They all went to each other's weddings. I didn't go to anyone's wedding. Sometimes I just feel sad about that. Like the social group I had continued, continued along together and I just disappeared from it. The second thing I notice in, in my life with relationships is that as hard as I find it to live in the moment, when I move and I'm in a new place, I just suddenly am in that place and I get busy with that thing. So I went to BU and suddenly that's where I lived. So I didn't take care to keep in touch with people in my life that weren't at BU. I had a very full life there. I was running and busy and I had new friends and I was traveling. It was very easy to get caught up in it. So then I had my Boston life. And then I remember when I moved home, you know, for my one year stint in 1989, I was still loosely dating David and, you know, I move home and I'm just swallowed up in my life here and this is where I live now. And I didn't even think to call David or keep in touch for weeks and weeks. And he was just like, what happened? Are we done? Like, what's going on? And it was just a very, very bizarre. When I look back on it now, I really think it's bizarre. Like, put me in the pink box and I am pink. Put me in the blue box and I am blue. And once I'm in one box, I don't think about the other. That would be day-to-day -day life and being busy in the things that distract me. In terms of like emotionally, I get very, very stuck. Ask Roy. <laughs> I get very stuck on relationships and friendships and how things are. It can be really difficult for me to move on in those situations. Coming into my job loss. So there's another huge trauma, huge trauma. That affected many relationships. It affected relationships with people that I had thought were, were my friends in the district, former bosses, principals athletic directors, teaching friends, my entire social group disappeared. That's upsetting. What happened? I dove into our friendship with Robin and we hung out together all the time. I will say it saved me at the time. You know, Roy was in Marblehead. We didn't see each other all that often. I was living here. Things were terrible here. You know, talk about living a double life, you know, making believe everything's fine when nothing is fine. And then along came Robin. And so I could just immerse myself in working at flips and a new job and going to CrossFit. And I mean, my life went from, oh no, what am I going to do to, oh my gosh, the girls get gymnastics and I get to coach and I'm doing CrossFit and I'm getting fit and I'm tap dancing now. Like just all these things sort of just became my new blue box or my new pink box. And I became very, very busy. This also relates back to boundaries and intimacy. Intimacy is the ability to be close to somebody and setting boundaries is the ability to keep people away. I'm like backwards on these. I have a very hard time with intimacy. And I don't just mean sexual intimacy or physical intimacy, just emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy. Molly's death decimated that for me. But even before then, I would have the tendency to dive into emotional intimacy, like boom. 
And then when it came to boundaries, I would have no boundaries around what's appropriate and what isn't. Putting my nose in other people's business or not even that, not even being nosy so much as not saying no when people ask me to help them in very, very, very personal situations. I spent a lot of time with a friend of mine, former friend of mine named Amy, trying to help her in her disheveled, unhappy, seemingly abusive situation. Hours of time away from my family or with my family, but not focused on my family. That's what I do. I jump in. I said that in another podcast episode. I I jump in and save the drowning people all the time, even when I don't have a life jacket to save myself. And this happens. This goes back to the story I told once about Jack Frazier calling me selfish because I was so busy helping everyone that I didn't pay attention to the people that were helping me. All of this, all of this, all of these symptoms, all of these behaviors illustrate beautifully how difficult relations are, relationships are for people who have suffered from trauma and are living through grief and not able to focus. The other piece that relates directly to the abuse piece for me and just how my life was through my 20s and into my 30s is the not wanting to feel things. So there are times when you've been sexually abused, never a day goes by that some little vision of it doesn't go through my head and I go like this. If you're not watching, I just did like a shudder, like where I bring my shoulders up and my head, my neck quivers because it's a disgusting memory and it makes me feel gross. And so that probably happens at least once a day, but sometimes more depending on the day. So obviously in my, in my life, physical relationships have been difficult. I either have to shut my mind off and go somewhere else. So now I'm not even in the, in the moment, or I have to battle to focus and stay, stay paying attention. A handful in my 58 years, you know, two or three people at the most that I could be moderately comfortable with in a physical way. And, you know, that's kind of sad when you think about it. One of our basic human needs is to be touched and loved and all that. So anyway, all of those things come into our relationships. I was looking in my book here, The Body Keeps the Score, and there's a little thing on relationships here. And the first thing it says is, in order to recover, mind, body, and brain need to be convinced that it is safe to let go. So picture yourself on a first date or delivering a baby or, or nursing the baby or going to a job interview or sitting in, a, in an annual review where your performance is being checked. Any of these relationships, friendship where you're invited to a party in high school and you show up and you're wearing a completely different outfit than everyone else, those kinds of things. In order re- to recover, so the recover is trauma. The mind, the body, and the brain need to be convinced that it is safe to let go. This is a direct analogy to parallel lives or double life. When a child is abused in the night and they have to get up and go to school in the morning, they can't go to school evidencing abuse because the abuse reality is unsafe. So you put it away. You put it away and you put on the normal face because normalcy is safe. And so in my life, the barb that everyone saw was the safe barb. That barb wasn't being abused. The barb that was being abused was the one that lived at her house that said yes to everybody that, you know, took care of her little brother and sister that you know, just ran around trying to make everything okay. And I was the fixer in my house. That parallel life is unbelievably good training for, for relationship struggle later in life. Because which barb do I show? So on a date or in, in a group or in a, at a function, I'm going to show confident outgoing barb. And even on a, on a first few dates, that's the barb I'll show. Or the first few social interactions with a new friend. But then as time goes on, the real you who surf, you know, bubbles to the surface. That can be alarming for those of us that come from grief. The other side is who we choose to be with. And typically people like me end up with very, very abusive partners 
or partners who are equally as traumatized as we are. A normal person that isn't hardwired for trauma, that isn't hardwired for fear, that isn't hardwired for things to go wrong, very quickly becomes unacceptable to a traumatized person because there's no feedback that assuages the fear. This is where it makes no sense to someone that hasn't suffered grief and trauma. Like the people coming back from war and then recreating violent situations. Like the, the girl that was you know, raped repeatedly as a child that goes out and does drugs and gets raped as an adult. It makes no sense to, to the logical thinker. And of course it doesn't because it isn't logical. So when it comes to relationships and, and the double life, the strong part of me is attractive to people that want a confident woman. And oftentimes like narcissistic personality disorder, sociopaths, you know, people that have their own issues around feeling they need to control those that they're with are drawn to someone like me. Initially, I'm, I'm strong and outgoing and smart and intelligent and you know, and then as life goes on, those things can become overbearing. They can become controlling in their own right. And then the partner turns around and needs to recontrol. The other piece for me in looking at people I've chosen is that uh, very often I choose somebody that will just do what I say. And Kenny can be that way. I remember, I remember my mother warning me early on, don't you, don't you turn into, don't you boss him around and turn into someone that just tells him what to do. Kenny is a peacemaker. He'll do as he's told to make things okay sometimes. I remember I was at a race at White's Park. It was the alumni race and David was there and my biological dad, Tom, was there and they, and they were next to each other. And he said, well, I'm Tom. And he said, I'm David. And Tom said to David, what do you do? And he just said, I hold Barb's shoes. And he lectured me about that. Like if that's really what David thought his job was, was to hold my stuff so that I could go do whatever it was I was doing. In that exact example, it was just, he was holding my shoes. I was running a race, but he also warned me to not overwhelm my desire to control because of my history. He knew about my childhood and all that. So he understood that my likely need to control. This is all really complex. And as I'm talking, it doesn't all seem to make sense, but there's no way to say these things and really make a lot of sense. When I look at the people in my life that have been my best, best friends, my really best friends that just get it, all of the ones that really click with me and can stay the long haul and haven't disappeared and come back several times or or just living in the periphery, are those that have, that have lived a life similar to mine, a life full of ups and downs, a life full of uncertainty, a life full of unhappiness. Not that they weren't happy and healthy and all that. I don't want my good friends to think, what the heck? But when I look at those people that I really truly get along, like one of my best friends from childhood, she had a very traumatic in her own right life and then getting out of high school and getting into college. And she ended up joining a really strict religion, like a religious culty type thing. And that completely took her away from everyone that knew her and loved her because it was very closed off and very inclusive. And it was really, really sad. I felt like I lost somebody. But we were best friends for the longest time. Another good friend I have right now, she's very, very, very proactive in self-development and spiritual growth and all that. And, you know, while she hasn't suffered the traumas that I have, she has a life that has a lot of trauma in it. And her willingness to analyze it and work on it is a good match for me. We can share our crazies and not look at each other like, what the hell, you're crazy. So I often choose people and am drawn to people that I know will struggle. Probably one of my best friends in my whole life is Polly. And Polly has had an up and down life that makes most roller coasters look tame. And again, I could tell Polly anything and she would just listen and accept it because that's who we are to one another. When I look at the, the things I didn't touch on in the last episode around li living a double life and talking about relationships, the two can go hand in hand. And I remember mostly in middle school and the beginning of high school, that I would have to really, really, truly put on an act to act like the popular kids acted and to fit in. I had to 
think before I spoke and bite my tongue. I had to make sure I said the right thing. You know, I had to idolize the people that should be idolized, even if I didn't. You know, middle school and high school dynamics, especially among girls, is so emotionally manipulative. And, and it was very hard to navigate. And it was a big piece of my life. So in terms of relationships and how difficult they are, that double life plays a role in it. One of my problems, too, is this, the need to control, which is funny because my sort of day-to-day relationships, like Kenny, who I married, and David, who I dated for a long time, these two, I always compare David and Kenny because they're two of the nicest people you'll ever meet. They're just kind and helpful and all that. But not necessarily one to stand up and fight back or not maybe in the moment. I felt oftentimes that I was easily able to control them. That's so unhealthy. My need to control comes from the fear of how out of control abuse makes you feel, how out of control my job loss made me feel, how out of control Molly's death made me feel, how out of control my situation currently with Roy makes me feel, how out of control my family and putting on this image that we're this happy family, Gracie, Jack, Kenny, and me, when we're really a family in huge peril and and struggle, you know, but we, we smile and nod, you know. So some of this comes from a need to control, which is also very common among people with trauma. If you're a control freak, take a look at your life. If you don't think that you've had a trauma-filled life, sometimes if you really think about where does my need to control originate from, where does this come from? Sometimes it pops right up. Oh, this time that this happened or that happened. Feeling out of control is terrifying. I remember I was in a little fender bender on the highway with Gracie and Molly in the backseat on the way home from a dance competition. And it was icy and we spun all around and there was nothing we could do. I looked in the rearview mirror at their terrified faces. I had no control. All I could do was take my foot off the gas, try to manage the steering wheel, and hope that we came out alive, which we did. So maybe I did have control, but it did not feel that way. And how do I drive the rest of the way home? Gripping the wheel and driving two miles an hour. Abuse and trauma are uncontrollable, and so we want to control everything else. So executive functioning is another piece that plays a big role in relationships. So those of you not in education might not really know the term executive functioning, but essentially, That's the ability to organize. It's the ability to look at a sink full of dishes and understand how to empty it, how to wash them, what process needs to take place to empty the empty the sink of dirty dishes, folding laundry, organizing a house, getting to work on time, executing a job, doing homework. Everything you need to set up so that you can then complete the task is executive functioning. And not surprisingly, lots of kids struggle with this in school these days. We have these little machines called iPhones (laughs) and Androids and computers and iPads and laptops and such that give us instant answers and take away our need to set something up step by step and organize it. People that have suffered trauma and abuse can have lousy executive functioning. I've always thought of myself as being the most disorganized, organized person in the world. As I look at my pile of bins here and and think back to every house I've lived in, it's always been a disastrous mess. Piles of things everywhere. But if you ask me where something is, I can direct you to the pile. Recovering from trauma, you need to restore the ability to function executively, to have executive functioning skills. Super difficult. Trauma causes hyperarousal. And of course, as a sexual abuse victim, I immediately think of sexual arousal. And that's not what it means at all. When you're hyperaroused, think of a little baby who's like, I won't go to sleep like Jack-Jack between eight and 10 at night. You know, when they're, when they're just super hyper and sort of over the edge or when you're so excited because you just ran a race and you won and you're jumping all around like crazy or you're you just got off a roller coaster and you have all that rush or you're nervous about something or you're about to speak. Hyperarousal is when every cell in your body is on. And it's normal for this to happen. You're getting chased by a bear in the woods. It's very good to be hyperaroused at that time. 
But hyperarousal in trauma victims causes an inability to focus and prioritize. When you're feeling like this, ah, and you have a list of things to do, how do you know which one to do first? Sometimes you just do the first one that pops into your head. And, and this is me. This is where I can make great lists and then I can't execute getting anything on the list done. And the hyperarousal for me lately has been anger. I'm just so angry. I'm just going through an anger, anger phase. I'm angry as opposed to like, Whoa, freaked out and scared, which I was in the months after Jack was born and all of that. These are things that can get in the way of healthy relationships. And this is just trauma and grief that you're bringing into your adult life before you have relationships. I'm not, I haven't even gotten to the part about what trauma does to a relationship. As I talked about, I think in another episode in this book, The Body Keeps the Score, to cure or to recover from trauma doesn't mean you recover from what happened to you because you can't undo what happened, but you can, you can recover and alter and change and manage how you respond to what happened to you, how you react. And that's where you have physical movement, breathing, and meditation, and sometimes medication. And so for me, <laughs> the breathing, meditating piece is, is very, very difficult. I have a hard time sitting still because my mind immediately goes to the bad places and I want to fill it with distractions. Physical movement has always been a really, really big piece of what makes me okay. And I was actually, in terms of this specific thing, and this goes back a little bit to the canyon, I spent four hours sitting on a rock being told to feel. And because I was being filmed and all this and I had a bit of an audience, it was a bit of a distraction. And I was in a canyon in Utah, so that was a huge distraction. But I don't sit and feel. It's not something I do. When I sat after Molly's death, I sat and tried not to feel. And I filled myself with chemicals that took away my ability to feel anything but the effect of the chemicals. This exercise in Utah was profoundly helpful for me because in the process of feeling the feel so they could film my face and film my body and my reactions and everything else, I actually had a couple of really, really big epiphanies around how helpful and cathartic it was to just sit and feel. And it's not easy at all. And I know in a lot of the help I received from Roy after Molly's death, right after, and even a few years after when we reconnected a bit, you know, I, I would cry and cry and cry. And, and whatever trauma he brings into his relationships, he wanted me to stop. Just, well, you can't change it. So why sit there crying? Well, I can't not cry. Like, you know, there's so much that goes into this. And then the other thing with trauma and grief is that so much of how we remember things are unbearable, unbearable sensations. Like when I did the podcast on death week and Molly's death, to go back, it was like chewing glass. It was like fingernails on a chalkboard, so unbelievably uncomfortable. And sometimes those memories come up at that level while I'm driving or while I'm washing Jack's bottles or while I'm in the shower, horrible, horrible feelings just rise up and I have no choice but to respond to them somehow. All of these behaviors on my part <laughs> likely make me not an easy person to be in a relationship with. Having said that, I'm also affable and fun. I enjoy a good time. Kenny and I have had great times in our relationship. We get along well in day-to-day -day life for the most part. Not so much now, but we have in the past. And you know, I was fine. I remember when I went to Amsterdam with Roy, one of his big complaints was that nobody, nobody he'd ever taken on a vacation could keep up with him, or he always ended up doing things by himself. You know, he's had a couple of relationships since, and he had the same complaint. Our week, our five days in Amsterdam, as tragic as it is now, six days, maybe seven altogether, I don't know. We had a blast. We had a really, really good time. At the end of each day, it was like, today was great. And I remember feeling so proud of myself because I wanted very much to appease and please him and, and be a good vacation buddy. And I was. I have a side to me, a side to me that is very, very fun to be around. I'm smart. I know a lot of things. I'm an easy conversationalist. Since Molly's death, I can be a bit of a whack job and I cry for no reason and I fall off the wagon mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually, all of it. You know, I have a very hard time. So in looking at 
what I bring into a relationship or how I am in a relationship, all of these things related to grief and trauma. So now let's talk for a minute about what happens to a relationship that's good when you already have trauma. So in the book here, our attachment bonds are our greatest protection against threat. You're a married couple and you have kids and your house burns down and everyone gets out alive. What's important is that your family stays together. You have a bond to these people and you stay together. When people are lost in the fire, maybe the mother and the daughter get out and the, the other daughter and the father don't. That mother and daughter, on some ways, are like just forced together because they're the only two surviving. But what happens to that relationship? It certainly can't stay the same. And oftentimes those relationships completely separate. But our bonds are the people that mean a lot to us. Our connections are unbelievably important. It's what makes recovering from like something like child loss so difficult because people that were so close to me that I relied on completely are invisible in my life now. And those people I didn't even know are now those people. So yes, I guess it balances out, but the loss of everything you knew along with the person, you know, my life, I think back to when Molly was alive and I, I don't even know that Barb anymore. I don't even know where she is or who she is. Traumatized human beings recover in the context of relationships. Okay, so the way that we recover from anything is not alone. Sitting alone is not how we recover. We look for connections and relationships. I always think of that song, I am a rock, I am an island. You know, we aren't rocks and we aren't islands. We just aren't. We're meant to be connected. We are social beings. We recover in the context of relationships. So families, loved ones, AA meetings, veterans organizations, religious communities, therapists. The role of those relationships is to provide physical and emotional safety, including safety from feeling shamed, admonished, or judged, and to bolster the courage to tolerate, face, process the reality of what has happened. That is a tall order for anyone who wants to be my friend, right? Which is why I think I'm often drawn to people that have suffered trauma, because we are already on equal footing, not only with how we feel inside ourselves, but how willing we are to accept how the other person feels. I respond all the time on Facebook pages to mothers who have recently lost children because they're in that beginning phase where they can't fucking believe what's happening. Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, that horrible time. As much as I hate that Molly's been gone for six years, I would not want to go back to month one and month two and month three. But I want to go back and do things differently. Of course, that's the story of everyone's life. If only, if only, if only. But all that goes into recovering and dealing with those things is stress on a relationship. People have to be committed. At the time that Molly died, Kenny and I were living apart. We were separated and we were not doing well at all. And I was making plans to, you know, make the jump and really truly be separated from Kenny and further my relationship with Roy. Molly's death decimated both of those things, ultimately. What happened with me was, oh no, Molly's dead. So the family I rely on is Gracie and Kenny. Not that I'm now re-in love with Kenny and want to have a happy, fluffy marriage. No, it was more like survival, like Kenny represented a huge piece of Molly. Molly was gone. And for me, everything had to stay the same. I couldn't change anything. Don't touch anything. You know, like moving stuff that she had placed somewhere. I was really mad that somebody came in and cleaned up our bathroom. That was my Molly's vomit. I should have cleaned it up. I wanted to see it. I wanted to process it. Makes no sense, but that's how it was. And so in my utter sheer terror that Molly was actually dead, all I wanted to do was exist with Gracie and Kenny. I was afraid Gracie would kill herself. I didn't know what Kenny would do. And then at the same time, my support system at the time, my stabilizing factor, my escape from the craziness of my life was Roy. And he was phenomenal. But it all got to a point where everyone's needs are different. Kenny didn't offer any comfort to me whatsoever for a couple of years, not because he didn't want to comfort me, 
but he had no ability to do it. I remember crying outside once. I was sobbing on the grass. All he needed to do was put his hand on my back and nothing. He just sat there. And then he got up and went inside and I was crying alone on the grass. It was the most bizarre, awful thing I've ever experienced. I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. My mother couldn't comfort me. That relationship remains a struggle sometimes. I had a lot of anger around my mother. I would start to cry and then she'd start to cry and talk about her. Well, no, I need you to help me right now. You know, it was just very, very tricky, very, very, you know, unsettling. And it affected relationships in a great way. We all react differently and all of our own trauma triggers come out when the going gets really tough. In my relationships, in my day-to-day life, when I sit there and say I lost it, it makes me sound like poor me. And that's not how I feel at all. I, re- I really am making an observation that I couldn't get up and leave Gracie and Kenny and go live in Massachusetts with Roy. Nor could I tell Gracie, I'm kicking your dad out because Gracie was very uncomfortable with Roy in the whole situation. Gracie had just lost her sister. My whole entire job was to make sure Gracie was okay. That came before every relationship I had, including the relationship with myself, which is I think sometimes why I was so easily drawn into, into becoming really a heavy drug user is that I just, I had to put on a space for Gracie to make sure that she was safe. We slept on the living room floor. I've said that for two and a half years. On the living room floor, our living room floor was our, where we slept. Kenny slept upstairs and we didn't. And it, you know, it was just, that's just the way it was. It was incredibly difficult. Oftentimes, one of the biggest things that happens as the result of a child loss is divorce. Families separate, husbands and wives separate. I know for me, with one exception, I cannot stand being touched. It just cringes me. Nursing Jack is sometimes incredibly difficult. If I, and I love, oh my God, I love nursing. My favorite feeling in the night is when his little shriveled body comes up and he finds my boob and he nurses away and goes back to sleep. I'm just like, my God, I love being a mother. It's the best feeling ever. But I have times where, you know, I'm in that half awake, half asleep place where I have to like take deep breaths and breathe through it and remind myself that this is the most perfect little baby nursing up from his mommy and this is natural and it's okay. Because I get into this place where I'm very, very just cringed out. I can't, you know, for a long time, initially after Molly's death, hugging Gracie was the biggest necessity ever, but it hurt me so much. It just brought up many feelings for me that I really created walls around myself, physical walls, the hugs and the touches and the caresses and the kisses and ugh, you know, none of it. So, you know, I was here, I was living in a house with Kenny, but a non-existent relationship other than getting day-to-day tasks done, creating Molly B gear, making sure Gracie was okay, trying to develop habits that kept us okay, and to create a unified front for Gracie. We both knew that Gracie is what came first. We came second, third, or third and second, you know, tied for whatever. In terms of Roy, Roy's motivation at the time was he wanted a relationship. When I realized that he wanted a relationship more than he wanted one with me, that it wasn't me necessarily that would make him happy in July of 2016, that it was just a relationship period. That was hard to take. I remember at the time he just took me off his Facebook, like erased me, like I never existed. And I'm like, but I did exist. And he's a huge connection to Molly for me. So any sort of normal relationship with Roy would require a huge amount of communication between the two of us and that we don't have the, or have not evidenced the ability to to do. And I'm not going to lay blame in a podcast episode. I have my thoughts and ideas on all of it, but you know, that in my mind is a very unfinished scenario that you know, needs to have good closure and doesn't. My opinion, I guess, but, but I'm the other half of it. So these are examples so far where, where my relationships have been affected. I will tell you that my family, my aunts and uncles and cousins are phenomenal. I have had, if anything, my relationships 
we never saw each other much anyway. It wasn't like we had day-to-day relationships with my family members, but they have not wavered in their support of me. Now, my uncle Nathan lost a son, Caleb, at age eight in 2011, so five years prior to Molly's death. So we have a family that's used to child loss and understands that what you do is you wrap your arms around your family and hold them. They have been amazing around Jack's arrival. Amazing. I would have to say all the trauma and grief I've endured has not affected the quality of relationships with my mother's relatives at all, at all. My Norm Higgins dad, he doesn't have a lot of family. There weren't relationships to worry about. And then my biological dad, so I have sisters and brothers, those relationships have also remained positive. Again, those aren't day-to-day relationships. So has it put a new spin on things? Absolutely. But I'll tell you, I have an incredibly supportive family and I'm lucky. I'm very, very lucky. My siblings, I think that in terms of sibling relationships for me, I've been okay. You know, we all continue. My sister, Johanna, has pulled way back. I think that self-preservation for her, it's not that she doesn't love me or want to be with me or that she doesn't miss me or miss Molly, but she understands how hard it is for me to function. And so she often feels like she's in the way. My brother, Jonathan, and I are always super intellectual. We're always able to talk about everything and talk around things. And then my brother, Rick, you know, he was away for a long while. So he was absent for a lot of what went on. And so our relationship is sort of akin to someone that didn't know me before Molly died because he hasn't gone through it all, even though, of course, he knew me before Molly died. Here's something else that's relevant here. In our society, the most common traumas in women and children are at the hands of their parents or intimate partners. That's hard to take. So when I look at my traumas, I have similar people in my life that have inflicted trauma and grief and poor behavior on me. Friends, romantic relationships, and not parent, but like, you know, like family in charge relationships. Child abuse, molestation, domestic violence are all inflicted by people who are supposed to love you. This knocks out the most important protection against being traumatized, being sheltered by the people you love. If the people like Molly, I loved Molly, Molly loved me and she's dead now. So there's no safety in loving someone just because I love you and take good care of you doesn't mean you're not going to die. That's pervasive in my head sometimes. It just is. And you can't talk me out of it. Molly knew stranger danger. Molly ate well. Molly took care of herself. She looked both ways before she crossed the street and she's dead. So there's no footing for me that feels stable when I'm looking for any sort of stability. People will say, what are your goals for Jack? I'm like, today, I'm going to be a really good mom to him today. I hope he's happy today. I will not entertain 10 years down the road. It's not that I'm not planning for it financially and all that, you know, make sure he learns and all. But no, no, no. All I have with Jack is right now, he's at big boy school right now, and then he'll get picked up by Kenny and they'll drive. They could get in a car crash and die. I know that sounds horrible, but for heaven's sakes, just because I have a life of trauma doesn't mean more can't come. And so I keep it in a very safe place. The next piece, and I just, I started this and then stopped, was how child loss and grief and trauma can end marriages. And it, and it does a lot. So like I said, I have a lot of people that I talk to in Facebook groups, people that comment on my posts. I'm very open on Facebook and, and, and people that comment here in the podcast. I put a post on Facebook about how you never get the old barb back. I used a picture from my TV commercial and I talked about how people are waiting for me to be happy again. And now that's just not the case. This is who I am, love me or leave me. And I talked about how my mother and Kenny couldn't comfort me and I couldn't comfort them. The only person I could really comfort was Gracie. Marriages can really suffer and struggle. People think, oh, look at you and Kenny, that Molly's death got you back together. No, we're not back together. We are very, 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 very good friends. We live well together. We co-parent well together. I love Kenny very much. Kenny loves me. I do believe he may have a bigger desire 
for us to be together like husband and wife one day than I do. Again, I can't even wrap my head around any of that right now at all. I can't, it's too much to think about. It's just too much, too much, too much. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't want to be touched. I don't want to be hugged and loved. I don't want to be told I'm pretty. You know, it's just, (laughs) that's me right now. So anyway, I received a response from somebody who has suffered child loss. And this mom talked about her marriage and it's so profound how she said it, just so profound. So I put a post on Facebook, again, like I said, about my current reality of child loss. And the old Barb will never exist because the old Barb had an alive daughter named Molly that hung out with her alive daughter named Gracie. So the loss of our child not only changed me and my husband, but it also attacked what was once the most amazing marriage. So amazing that people would say they wish they had what we had. We were married 25 years, but together 29 when we lost her. And I can honestly say I had not one complaint. Our marriage was perfect. He was a wonderful father, perfect in fact, always put our kids first, worked hard. About eight months after her death, it was as if a tornado landed on us and ripped us apart. So they manage eight months, which is like the numb time where you hold on to each other and pray it's not true. And since then, we fight every day to save ourselves. We fight every day to save our marriage, our sons and our grandchildren. So I don't know the details of what's going on in her life, but it's not this fluffy, happy thing that it used to be. The loss of life's greatest gift and blessing is a life sentence, child loss, that leaves you definitely different. And if those that can't understand and love the new you can't understand and love the new you, then you have to walk away. I've had to walk away. We fight each day to smile and laugh without guilt. And that takes a long time and to learn to live on. No one should have to beg for love or understanding. No, no one should, except that it's unreasonable for us to assume that everyone will just know how we feel. And what works for me might not work for this mom, might not work for another mom. Your family is decimated. It's like a bomb hits and nothing is the same and you can't put it back together because certain parts are decimated and other parts are broken and nothing is as it was. This is probably the biggest reaction and the biggest piece of trauma is this aspect of you wake up and you look the same. Yep, here I am. I got the same hair basically and I got bangs and I look like Barb. And if I walk down the street, people know I'm Barb, but I am nothing, nothing like the Barb that existed on April 30th, 2016, when I was coming home from Amsterdam and spending my last night with Roy before coming home to what I thought was making big changes and and moving along in my life and decimated. So it's tricky, the disparity between I still need to stay here and sit and process this, and I'm ready to move on. Marriage counseling is a huge piece for families who have lost children. And, you know, many stay together. Mothers and fathers stay together, especially if they have children, other children, because those children need the parents that they lost. I remember saying, you know, Kenny, Gracie, and I, I need the Kenny that existed before Molly died, but he's not around. He needs the Barb that existed. Gracie needs her mommy, the mommy that she always had, and she lost that mommy the same day she lost Molly. So what do we do? We all need the person that doesn't exist anymore. And this, this single reality is probably what makes the dance of family and relationships and marriage and love so difficult after a traumatic event or a loss. Because although things look the same, nothing is the same. I don't know if this has been helpful at all. I do know that I struggle on a daily basis with how to be kind to myself and kind to Kenny and what's the right thing for us to do. Not that I want to be mean to Kenny, that, that's not what I mean, but Kenny and I, we both just do the best we can. 
and babies are reality producers. <laughs> so we're really good parents to Jack. Jack is a happy boy. Kenny is an amazing father and I'm a good mother. And while he sees us upset, sometimes people get upset. We're never upset with him. He's never the cause of upset. I think Gracie is living her normal freshman year of college experience where she's homesick, doesn't really like where she is, but doesn't dislike it so much. So many of the things that she's going through and how she feels are exactly what she should be going through. She gets to be Gracie down there, a Gracie that nobody knows other than who she is right now today, which is super helpful because she doesn't have to constantly explain or feel like she has to live up to standards she can no longer meet. These are good. In looking at my grief groups, there's always conversation around marriage. I have a local group I go to here and it's couples. Kenny and I went and we're probably the least couple of the couples. Rachel's parents, Jen and Dave, this sweet family that lost a baby years and years ago, John and his wife, Mary, Natty's parents, they sort of run the group. So here are all these married couples, another married couple too, whose names I don't remember right now. They were physicians here in Concord. At any rate, these are people who have managed to stay married. They've managed to stay together. Whether or not they're happy inside their four walls or functioning, I don't know. The other piece is how we look, look to be comforted. And, and the last thing I want for comfort is anyone to hold on to me. It's difficult. You know, it's difficult for me. So I have Jack and I can get my, my little lovey loveys from him. But these are all things that really weigh heavily into grief and trauma and recovering from these things. And while, again, relationships and parallel living and internal conflict straddle the fence, so to speak, they affect one another. Anyway, as I finish the podcast, it's the middle of March. I just finished the CrossFit Open workout for you CrossFit folks that listen. It's every year there's a big CrossFit Games and it starts at the gym level where everyone can do, where there are workouts that everyone can do. So today was workout number three. There used to be four. I kind of missed the four week ones. I don't feel like I'm ready to be done yet, but so I have some, some good physical things. I have foot surgery coming up, which is a huge trigger of anxiety for me because I don't like being stuck and trapped. And I have an interesting foot surgery analogy that I'll talk about later on in another season of podcasts. So that's coming up. I'm going to go down to Disney and visit Gracie over Jack's birthday. That's the hope and plan. Yeah, this podcast will come out either shortly before that trip or shortly after. I think, I'm not sure. I lose time. That's okay. I hope what I had to say was helpful and interesting. I hope that if you're suffering through these things, that if anything I tell or share resonates with you, that you reach out. The way that I'm going to make better podcast episodes is to really see what people like and listen to and want to hear, dig into my vault of stories to share. And also, please, please, please keep listening and tell your friends to listen. I'm not like a download hungry podcaster. I had pretty significant growth and I've sort of plateaued a little bit. I think I have my faithful hardcore listeners. So I'm hoping the TV commercial and, you know, some of these other things will boost listenership. But I really mostly just want to help as many people as possible with what I have to say and how I feel. Daylight savings is tomorrow. So next time when you hear this one, I wonder if I'll just be recovered yet from having to get up earlier than it should be, that kind of thing. I'm excited about it though. I cannot stand the dark. Darkness is hard for me. The bulk of my abuse happened in the dark. And so I think sometimes I don't do well with the dark. All my bad dreams are in the dark. I know this is a little meandering of topic, but I was walking with B and sharing all of these things with him and what I was going to talk about on my next podcast. And he's an incredibly intuitive young person. He's 21. But I spend, you know, a couple hours a week with B talking about life and relationships and trauma and addiction and CrossFit and conflict. And he is unbelievably astute and advanced for someone his age and gender, not to be, not to limit men as, you know, not understanding feelings, but B is incredibly intuitive and willing to share his intuitive nature. He's a wonderful CrossFit coach. 
And we talk about a lot of these things, a lot of my podcasts, he listens and things will jump out for him as well. But we talked yesterday at length, we were walking all around Amesbury, it was a beautiful sunny day. And we talked at length about relationships and how, like, you know, my, so I belong to CrossFit Amesbury and I got member of the month. I go twice a week and sometimes in a month, I miss a week. So I'm maybe in that gym eight times a month at the most. And I got member of the month, which was a huge honor for me. And essentially it comes, it can be from the highest number of check-ins, which is not me. You know, I thought oh, I'll never be member of the month. I don't come enough, but it's also what you're willing to put into your experience there and how I feel about my family at CrossFit Amesbury and, and my family here in Concord, but I'm focused on this right now, is that you have a group of people that are just willing to open up their arms and accept you. And I have met amazing mothers and amazing little children. I've met amazing high-level athletes and I've met amazing coaches. And this particular gym is very family-based. And I just feel like, like it creates for me the sense of family and healthy relationships in a life like mine where I don't always feel like I have it. You know, that was, that's quite an honor. I also want to give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Pam. Pam Baxter, I love you. She's a CrossFit friend of mine. And we, you know, I had a tough day today. We did the workout together and that was great. And she's always one to listen and she will fire off her opinion, <laughs> whether or not you want to hear it, which I love about her and then apologize if it upset me. But I was getting ready to leave and she came up to the car and she goes, you want to go for a run? And, you know, it was great. We ran like a mile and a half. It took forever. It was painful. But it was really, really awesome to run. So, you know, when I look at relationships, you know, Pam is, a, is someone that didn't know me before Molly died. B is someone that didn't know me before Molly died. None of those people, people at CrossFit Amesbury knew me before Molly died. So I have these profound relationships in my life that exist with people that only know this Barb. And sometimes I think that's, you know, the healthiest way to go. Not that I want to discard those of you that know and love me from before. That isn't what I'm saying at all. Nothing, nothing in what I say is mutually exclusive. It's the word and is in the middle. I'm angry and I'm happy. I'm sad and I'm happy. I'm scared and I'm not. Like, there's no but. It's all together. And that's the way it is. So I want to just say thank you for listening. Thank you for reaching out and giving me your feedback and your thoughts. Please, please do. Another thing coming up that I hope you'll support is I'm going to start blogging again, writing, and I have some anxiety around it, but I really am going to get into that. That will start either in the month of April or the month of May. It depends on how put together I can be. And I'm also going to start a weekly email that sort of explains what's going on. It's another way to click into the podcast or click into the blog. If you listen to or read those things, I just want to try to reach people with as many mediums as possible so that I can get the word out. Enjoy your week. This will come out on a Tuesday. So enjoy your Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Look forward to spring and pray for warm weather if you're in a cold weather place. Be kind to somebody after you've been kind to yourself. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.